Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter the offer code less dumb at checkout. A better web starts with your website. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 28. Less than an hour. Aircraft from here will join others from around the world. And you will be launching the largest aerial battle in the history of mankind. This is the 1996 blockbuster, Independence Day. And I remember seeing this movie years ago. And I remember at the end of the movie, everyone gave it a standing ovation. I've never forgotten how weird that was. This crowd of strangers just kind of all stood up and clapped at the screen. I mean, the filmmakers weren't there. It just, it got to them. It it was a simpler time, a, a less cynical time. We're fighting for our right to live, to exist. And should we win the day, The 4th of July will no longer be known as an American holiday, but as the day when the world declared in one voice, we will not go quietly into the night. We will not vanish without a fight. We're going to live on. We're going to survive. Today, we celebrate our Independence Day. Yes, I'm telling you, the crowd in that movie theater many years ago when I was much younger, yes, I saw them stand up and applaud strangers together clapping at a movie screen in a darkened theater just as the lights are coming up and the credits are rolling. And I think they did it because the intention of that speech is to bring the audience together in the same way that it's bringing together the fictional characters. The president's saying, you can do this, you can defeat the alien hordes, and you feel like you know, you're, you're being inspired just as much as they are. And we know it works because that rousing speech has a long pedigree. It goes back to the St. Crispin's Day speech in Shakespeare's Henry V. All those rousing speeches in our movies and our television shows, they are descendants of that speech. And you've heard it before, even if, even if right now you may not know what I'm saying. It Well, here, this is Kenneth Branagh's version. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers, for he today that sheds his blood with me shall be my brother. Be he ne'er so vile, this day shall gentle his condition. And gentlemen in England, now abed, shall think themselves accursed they were not here, and hold their manhoods cheap. Whilst any speaks that fought with us upon St. Crispin's Day. (laughs) You've heard many, many variations of that. Many times has uh, that served as inspiration for an inspirational rallying cry 
someone who gets out there and delivers a rousing call to action to a group of people facing tremendous odds. It's been repeated many times since Shakespeare in many ways in many media from comic books to classic novels. And you've seen it in a dozen movies and TV shows. Come back here and tell our enemies that they may take our lives, but they'll never take our freedom! the courage of men fails when we forsake our friends and break all bonds of fellowship but it is not this day an hour of wolves and shattered shields when the age of men comes crashing down but it is not this day this day we fight by all that you hold dear on this good earth I bid you stand When you're tasked with trying to determine what it is that ties all of those scenes together and what it is that those scenes are dramatizing, you would probably focus on the speaker, on the person standing tall, pleading with the group to listen, to dig deep, to realize that together they are strong. But it's not the speaker that makes a rallying cry powerful. Just pretend all of those scenes that you just heard from Braveheart, from Gladiator, from We Are Marshall and Game of Thrones... Think about how goofy they would seem if the leader was yelling all of that and then the camera panned around to reveal one dude or maybe two people, you know, sitting there eating some cheese and they look up and go, hmm, yeah, we should do this. When you think about the great speeches of history, consider the crowd. Crowds change the way we think, feel, and behave. A person in a crowd will do things that he or she would never do alone. And when you have a large number of people in the same place at the same time doing things that they normally wouldn't do by themselves, well, you can get all sorts of strange results. Riots, revolutions, marches, protests, rallies, mobs, flash, and otherwise, and teams, and armies and speeches, speeches that have inspired us in our theater seats and speeches that have unified nations for both good and evil. But why? Why do crowds change us? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McCraney, and I will be your host. And on each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, we explore another topic in the realm of self-delusion. And then we seek out an expert on that topic, and then we eat a cookie. And today's topic is crowds and, uh, you know, all their various forms, mobs and riots and uh, protests and marches and Our guest today is Michael Bond, a journalist who wrote a book uh, called The Power of Others, Peer Pressure, Groupthink, and How the People Around Us Shape Everything We Do. And in that book, Michael writes that following the French Revolution, academics, rulers, politicians, philosophers, they were all very concerned with how easily it seemed that civilization could, in an instant, fall away and 
the citizens of a city gather, protest, and then become angry mobs. Lots of people in positions of power were eager to learn how to keep their heads off of pikes in the future. And with the revolution still fresh in everyone's minds, and after the, the after effects were being sorted out, the 1800s became a time in which the nature of crowds became a subject of much debate. And one person emerged from all of that debate and discussion with a book, one that tried to explain what happens to a person subsumed by a collective. And in 1895, Gustav Le Bon, one of the first sociologists, wrote The Crowd. And it was a pre-scientific book of hypotheses and observations of things that he had seen himself or had heard from others. And in a time period of great flux following the Great Revolution, he was sort of obsessed with understanding how people could be manipulated by a charismatic leader. So basically he said that crowds are dumb and if you can sufficiently blow their minds, you can get them to do anything you want. And it was a very, very popular book reprinted for 25 years and translated in 17 languages. And it's worth noting that the, the Nazis used this book as a guide for how to talk to crowds and so did Lenin and Stalin, and it was used by later psychologists as a starting point for how to study people in groups, and it's still going strong. People on the political left and the right will sometimes mention Laban when they can't understand why people believe in things that they personally do not believe in. As uh, Bond uh, writes in his book, Ann Coulter has used this, uh, has used Laban extensively for a book called Demonic, How the Liberal Mob is Endangering America. And I've noticed, we mentioned this in the previous episode, actually, that um, in psychology, there's this, um, they call it dogmatic reasoning. And that's believing that your, your beliefs and opinions are actually facts. And anyone who disagrees with these facts must be stupid or inexperienced or they're being manipulated. And so you'll see that a lot in books that are making fun of or criticizing the left or the right. They Assume that the, those people must simply be stupid, inexperienced, or that they're being manipulated. Of course, none of these things are true about the author, uh, because the author has seen the light. They know the facts. But here, here's some of Laban in his own words. This is a direct quote, okay? The conclusion to be drawn from what precedes is that the crowd is always intellectually inferior to the isolated individual, but that from the point of view of feelings and of the acts these feelings provoke, the crowd may, according to circumstances, be better or worse than the individual. All depends on the nature of the suggestion to which the crowd is exposed. So, Laban's book is still the guide for most people in power on how to think about and deal with crowds. According to Laban, Crowds are an irrational subhuman mass of automatons ready and eager for programming. And most importantly, they never program themselves. An outside force tells them what to do. And that outside force boils down its message to the most general statement it can make. Very basic concepts like freedom or glory or peace and equality. And that there is a great, great power in vagueness and ambiguity when speaking to a large group of people, according to Laban. Well, our guest today, Michael Bond, who writes in his book, The Power of Others, that although this is still the dominant view on the matter, and that most of us still believe that this is true thanks to our received wisdom, the evidence coming out of the latest research into crowd psychology is really chipping away at LeBond's assertions. Also, as Bond writes, B-O-N-D, Bond writes, you have to remember that LeBond, like Freud, was just philosophizing. He wasn't looking over a body of research. He believed in all sorts of other strange things as well, like that Caucasians were a superior race because they had bigger skulls and thus bigger brains, and that women were basically a separate species from men, and that if a woman was to somehow be able to obtain an education and speak to him on matters of science or philosophy, then it would be like to, to him, and this is a quote from Laban, a gorilla with two heads. In other words, Laban was basically Dr. Zaius from the original Planet of the Apes. He thought that smart women who could speak eloquently were freaks of nature. So considering he was a moron on so many topics and completely convinced that he was actually a genius, his giant treatise on the nature of crowds should be considered a big book of guesses, of hypotheses, and we should let science go through them one by one until we know for sure if any of it is actually true. And side note, we should probably do that for all the great texts from history. 
So how is how is Laban wrong? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today with our guest, Michael Bond. He is a journalist. He is a science writer, a journalist who writes a lot about psychology and sociology uh, in the UK. He's a consultant for New Scientist, and uh, he's also been a senior editor at New Scientist as well. Um, Michael has also done research and reporting on suicide bombers, putting himself in great personal danger to actually go to the places where these suicide bombings have happened and talk to the families and really try to understand what's going on there. So we're going to talk about all of that stuff in the interview. Let's pick his brain. Okay. Hey, Michael, uh, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for coming. Um, I love your book, uh, the power of others and the, um, what I like a, a lot about this book is how it is. Um, if you're a fan of um, pop psychology books, you're a fan of these sort of um, thinking books. You will um, you'll be able to ease right into it, but also it immediately gets to some really big and challenging ideas. So uh, I think it's really cool. So I really appreciate you making this for all of us to enjoy. Well, thanks for thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be on the show. So let's just go. Let's just right off the bat. Let's try to define something that you are, are eager to define first of all in the book, and that is something called emotional contagion. What is that? So this is something that happens all around us every day. We're humans are very sociable creatures. We're very good at coordinating across groups, and one of the innate mechanisms that we possess that enable us to do that is mimicry. Uh, we copy each other all the time. You can just see this day to day if you're a group, group of friends or in a meeting in the office and you sit back and observe how people copy each other's body postures and facial expressions. And that soon leads into a kind of mimicking of emotions because once you assume somebody's uh, facial expression, then you quite quickly, because of the way uh, body posture and expression translate into emotion, you quite quickly pick up on what they're actually feeling. So that propagates itself across groups pretty quickly. So emotions are contagious just because of the inherent uh, sort of physiology that, that we own that allow us to cooperate with each other seamlessly. And you write about how a lot, this mostly happens beneath our conscious awareness. And uh, if someone is living with like a, a really depressive person, um, well, what could somebody, what would somebody expect to experience if they happen to be, find themselves living, say, with a roommate who is uh, very, very depressed? Yeah, well, this, this is a good, good example because you're not going to be consciously aware of when you pick up on people's uh, emotional expressions. It, it, it happens, as you say, um, without us uh, realizing it. And so if you're, if you're sharing uh, a living, living quarters with someone who is always depressed, now, the part of the way uh, that, that they express their depression is going to be on, on their face. They're going to be looking sad a lot of the time. And if you have any kind of empathy, then you're likely to be copying that expression quite a lot. And you can try this yourself. It's very easy. If you, if you turn down the corners of your, of your mouth and you kind of crunch up the, the inner edges of your eyebrows and assume that sort of um, look of sadness, pretty quickly you start to feel sad yourself. So if you're living with someone who is depressed... Uh, you're likely to take on some of that. But, of course, then you, you start to think, well, should we avoid people who bring us down like that? Uh, probably not, because, I mean, that's also the worst thing you could do, because people who are depressed, uh, social isolation is, 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 is one of the um, consequences and which, which, which make it worse. So, in a way, you want to do everything you can to, to break into that isolation, right. but there are going to be consequences. But it brings up such an interesting idea, which is that we, we, I know that, um, you know, American society is very individualistic and there's sort of a, a, a gradient, uh, across human cultures of some cultures are more communal and some are more uh, individual there. They value that idea, but 
regardless of whatever your like cultural like um, uh, norm is, uh, we still, regardless, are tend to catch other people's emotions, and it just seems mm-hmm. like I think the average American would find it um, a little difficult to believe that they're so susceptible to. Uh, whether it's very positive or very negative emotions or even, you know, nuanced things in between that were, that were permeable to those things. Yeah. Yeah. It's people don't like the, this idea because it, it gives the sense that you, you don't, you're not in, in control of, of, of how you feel and you're at the mercy of others. But I mean, I, I see it in a, in a, in a positive way. Um, uh, I mean, without this, kind of capacity to take on what other people are feeling, then we would be pretty isolated ourselves. We would feel pretty isolated. I mean, it, it, it has uh, terrific uh, uh, survival aspects, this, this kind of mimicry. Um, and I don't, I don't think it can be negative. I mean, there, there are negative consequences, of course, because as well as adopting people's feelings, we adopt their, their behaviors. And uh, there are examples of that all, all, all around. I mean, the kind of decisions you make for when you vote, when you uh, invest, when, when you buy music or, or, or clothes or um, fashion, this, you're tending to, to follow what, what other people are doing. It's very hard to step out of that and to mm-hmm. isolate yourself from those kind of, those kind of norms. Um, the key, of course, is really to look at the people that you're, you find yourself following and, and, and to think about whether they are acting on uh, good information or whether they are also just following for the sake of following. So there are ways by being aware of this that you can uh, improve um, your decision making mm-hmm. when you're doing it in the, in the context of a group. But it's, it's difficult. Yeah, I, I've written before myself about thinking about conformity how, you know, it's very difficult to actually be a true non-conformist. I mean, you're, uh, if you, if you say, I'm not going to wear those pants or I'm not going to wear those socks, you're still going to wear pants and socks. I mean, you're, you're there's, it's difficult to be a con- complete, true non-conformist. You're, 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 you're soaking in this, um, the social atmosphere. I mean, that's what makes us people. That's what separates us is this, yeah. uh, it yeah, makes us primates at least. That's right. And, 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 and you have to ask, well, would you really want to be a, a total nonconformist? Uh, would you really want to step out of, of that social influence? Because um, the consequences could be dire in, in, in terms of being isolated, feeling isolated mm-hmm. uh, in society. You know, that's some of the worst, worst aspects um, on, the, on the other side of the coin there. So I think that there, there are obvious good reasons why we might not want to step out of that but but by being aware of uh, of this tendency to conform we can perhaps avoid some of the worst uh, consequences of it could you mention uh could you um sort of go into a little bit of detail about what happens uh in experiments in which people are given botox <laughs> well this this is a very good uh, very good example um so we were talking about uh, emotional contagion and how you're not really aware of it. Well, you become aware of social mimicry and contagion really only when the other person that you're interacting with stops mimicking you. And pretty soon you feel that something's up without being able to put your finger on it. Now, people who have Botox injections into their frown muscles on their forehead to try and stop the effects of of aging and and, um, smooth out their skin... Well, that prevents them from being fully able to take on some of the expressions of, of sadness uh, because you can't move some of those muscles that you would do if you were feeling uh, truly sad. So if you're speaking with someone and, you, and, and you've had the, these Botox injections and they uh, are exhibiting expressions of sadness on their face and you're incapable of mimicking them, then that is almost certainly going to have an effect on, on that interaction. And neither of you may notice why, but it's likely that the person you're with is going to feel that something's not, not quite right, perhaps that you, know, you, don't, you don't like them or something, or, or, or that something in that interaction is, mm-hmm. uh, is not as fluid as it should be. So, so that's one thing to think about. Yeah, you write in the book how um, if you 
when people are given these uh, in experiments in which people are, are put into situations where they'll feel happy or sad or angry, um, mm-hmm. once they've had both Botox treatments, they find it more difficult to feel not happy, but they do find it more difficult to feel sad and angry. So like it, uh, losing the ability to express it on your face uh, sort of takes you out of the, um, um, takes away your ability to fully experience emotional contagion or participate in spreading it. Then, and it draws That's right. attention to the mimicry itself, which is astounding to me because you, uh, you, you mentioned the book about um, having a secret cameras filming people eating at dinner and how slowly people will just synchronize all of their behaviors and movements and when they take bites and everything else. And this mimicry is just a really large part of being a person that goes sort of uh, past our conscious awareness. And it's amazing to me. Yeah, it's it's a really big part of of of, of being human. I mean, without it, we'd be uh, some something completely different. Um, I mean, other primates do it too, but humans seem to do it uh, more efficiently uh, than than any other species. And I mean, eating is a is is a good good example. If you're with a if you're with a group of people sitting around a table sharing sharing a meal, um, usually you have no idea the extent to which people are coordinating the way they eat, uh, the, the, the time that they lift their glass to their lips or, or, or lift their fork. Um, and, but yeah, there have been several uh, studies uh, that show just the extent to which this happens. It's very highly coordinated and happens within seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like a sort of, sort of something balletic about it when, when, you, when you watch films and you're aware w- what's going on. Um, and and this is all part. Of, it, it's a kind of social choreography, really. It, it oils the, the wheels of of our social interactions. Um, that seems to be the purpose of it. But but we're never aware of it. Right. Well, that's this uh, gives us the opportunity for a great segue, and that is so. If that is largely invisible, there is something that has been very visible throughout history, um, and that's the behavior of mobs and crowds and. Um, Sure. large groups of people in revolutionary periods of time. And you discuss how people tend to write about and hypothesize about the source of this crowd behavior, especially right after a major event. And the conclusion about rioters for many years, and even today amongst many people, is that they that it's um, it turns people into mindless animals and that um, People in mm-hmm. positions of power and authority tend to say that in the right circumstances, you know, a crowd just can just immediately turn into an angry mob and spontaneously begin doing heinous things. And but despite this being the commonly held belief about people in large numbers, you say that the science doesn't really support this view. And so what does the science say about that? Yeah, this view it goes back probably to the to the French Revolution, uh, at least, um, this idea that, that that mobs are somehow crazy and that the people in a mob lose their identity, lose any sense of, of, of who they are. And I think that's that's really what what the science has has shown not to be the case. Um, and I mean I should point out it's it's quite hard to to study this the science <laughs> of crowds. Right. I mean, you know, the only way you, you really do it is to is, is to embed yourself in and, and Part of my book is actually following the people who who have done that uh, over the years, um, and it means going into a, a crowd, be it a, uh, a football crowd or uh, a big group of demonstrators on the streets, with a notebook, with a, uh, a tape recorder, and just uh, observing what what happens. and And the general scientific consensus is that people, when they're in a crowd, they don't lose their identity as such, but their sphere of interest ramps up from the, the personal, the individual, to the group. So you, mm-hmm. put another way, you become interested in what's going on around you. I and mean, a good example of, of how that happens is if you're sitting on, a, uh, on, 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 a, on an underground train um, on, a, on the subway, and you're, this happens in London, you, people tend to be on those trains and then looking at their paper or they're reading their, their phone and they're not looking around. They don't want to, certainly in, in England, they don't want to make eye contact with anyone around them. You know, it's all very personal, private space. But right. as soon as something happens on that, on that train, if, if, it, if it comes to a halt suddenly or you know, there's a smell of, of burning or something, then pretty quickly you stop 
reading your phone and you look up. And at that point, people actually tend to seek out eye contact with, with those around them. And very soon you've got a, what's called a, a psychological crowd. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of um, uh, a sort of sense that everybody's in this together and that people are interacting and very interested in what's going on. And so, and, but there's nothing irrational about it. I, I think that's the important point. There's, I mean, people have not suddenly become irrational because they're in that group situation. They just uh, make decisions on, on, a, on a different level and in cooperation. It's a very highly cooperative environment. Um, so I think that's what's different. It's not, a, it's, it's not madness or irrationality. It's just a different level of identity. Right. I think you say it's, it's a social identity. You, um, yeah. It, people become defined by, um, you know, what, what makes them alike or what, uh, or maybe they're defined by their shared opposition, but it doesn't, people don't just suddenly become, you know, crazy, uh, animals that are, are going to just, uh, rape and pillage and destroy everything in sight. There's a, you write a lot about how the, uh, even in riots, the behavior seems to be directed and purposeful. It's not, uh, there seems to be a, there's always sort of a, a goal, um, and oftentimes it's the goal is simply the, all of these people are in opposition to the police who are hurting them. That's um, yeah, go very ahead. often the case. Yeah, it's very often the case that, I mean, the behavior of crowds tends to be determined by what's happening outside the crowd. So you have a group of protesters and uh, demonstrating in a, in, in the street and there might be, there might be quite a lot of them walking down the street and, you know, they're doing, they're doing their thing. And then if, there's a, if, there's a, if the police change their behavior towards them, so if they start to crowd them in or, or stop them from walking down a particular street or they, try, or, or they start to get aggressive, then that very quickly changes the whole dynamic inside the crowd. It's normally what's happening outside the boundaries of the crowd that determines what happens inside the crowd. And the crowd as a whole tends to respond uh, in kind to what's going on outside. So, and that means that people who control crowds and who marshal and police crowds have a profound effect on, on how they behave, on mm-hmm. how crowds behave. So, so what, what, what do you, what should, from what you've researched, from what you've learned, what, what are some guidelines you think, uh, that seem really apparent for people who are, uh, charged with that sort of responsibility of dealing with crowds like that? The key thing seems to be the communication setting up lines of communication between those who are policing the crowd and those who are, who are in the crowd so that those who are in the crowd do not assume that those who are policing them are aggressive and uh, are going to uh, necessarily be violent or in some ways an enemy. And, and, and this has happened quite a lot uh, in the policing of football matches in Europe. It used to be inevitably a very robust response by the police especially to English fans traveling abroad because they have a a reputation of of being violent but what used to happen is whenever English fans went to a European city to support their team the police in that city would treat them all as potential thugs Mm -hmm. so there would be this sort of indiscriminate um, reaction to, to the crowd and that would have the inevitable effect of, of, of turning everyone in the, in the crowd aggressive towards the, towards the police. Um, so, but what happens now, because of the work of, of social psychologists and because of this understanding that, that, that has come out, is that the police tend to have liaison, liaison officers whose job it is to talk to people in the crowd and, and, to, and to build up links so that there's a kind of communication rather than a sense of us and them. Uh, and the key is really just you know, people tend to veer to, to their in-groups in these sort of situations. And if you can make out uh, that the police are not simply an out-group to your in-group, then that's how that's how progress uh, is made. That's fantastic. And, and it was really um, surprising to to realize from reading your book that crowds can be reasoned with and, and that we've made a lot of progress in how you should do that mm-hmm. and that crowds don't just spring to life they usually are 
they're expressing some sort of existing, you know, um, underlying grievance or something that then there's sort of like they join up together from all walks of life to express that grievance. And, um, yeah. What what do you think it is then that um, historically speaking that there's been that we still have this misconception? What do you think? Uh, where, what was that born from? Do you think it's a good question? I, I, I'm not sure. I, I think it's a very easy image to to support this this idea that a mass of people are somehow going to uh, harbor evil intent. Um, yeah, it plays into. It plays into natural fears, doesn't it? And it and it, it has been encapsulated in in, in fiction, in film, mm-hmm. um, and it's. I think it's an easy myth to peddle, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and and also, although uh, this thinking from social psychologists has started to, to make an effect on the way police, certainly in um, in Europe, police crowds. It, it hasn't actually, in the public conversation, had had much of an impact, uh, and, and, and nor among politicians. We had a, a serious case of, of rioting in in London um, uh, three years ago, uh, in the in several UK cities, and this did a lot of damage, and there was a lot of arson, a lot of uh, shops were, were were broken and burned, but the politicians immediately grabbed onto this sort of historic, mm-hmm. historical line that everybody in that crowd was inherently criminal uh, and bad. And, of course, what that enabled politicians to do was to dismiss any kind of genuine grievance that those communities might have had, to dismiss them out of hand. Uh, so, in a way, it allows this myth of, of crowds being mad and, 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 and evil, allows those in authority to wash their hands of it and, and not take responsibility for any kind of violence or right. any kind of um, cause. So, yeah, I think it, I think it really, I think it's still a very prevalent, prevalent myth. Oh, I, I know it. I definitely know it is just from where I live because I live pretty close to New Orleans and uh-huh. um, after Hurricane Katrina, uh, we had a lot of damage where I live, but you know, of course, uh, New Orleans had a lot of horrible things happen to them as well. And so living nearby, we weren't witness to what was happening in New Orleans, but we did get lots and lots of uh, information by way of rumor. And um, right. almost all of the, in the early days, all you heard about was like, oh yes, New Orleans has become uh, just a, you know, it's gone back to medieval times. People are rioting and pillaging and uh, the Superdome is on fire and all these things that are, that, uh, uh-huh. and that, um, I still meet people who still believe that that really happened. Um, but yeah. it turns out that, that actually there was very, there's almost, there's very little of anything like that happened. Uh, most, almost all of that was a rumor. It wasn't true. Uh, but it sort of fit people's, uh, expectations of a narrative and, and it created a narrative that people were willing to go along with. And, um, I, I thought back on that when I was reading your book, that that's something that people lean on immediately whenever, um, whenever people gather in a large groups for whatever reason, and, and, and they assume that it's going to end up being this violent, mindless, uh, horrifying riot. Um, yeah. It's a very hard, very hard narrative to, to shift. Um, yeah. and I think, uh, I mean, even if for people who, who've been involved in, in, in crowds, uh, you know, it's still very easy for them to believe that crowds are, are mindless and, and mad. But I think, I mean, it's worth people being aware of this when they're in a, in a peaceful crowd situation at a, at a music festival and, um, or, or, or anything, a religious gathering, because there are, the crowds can, can be great places to be. They can be truly up, uplifting and um, mainly because of the, the cooperation uh, that happens with within it and, and mm-hmm. the coordination. And it, it can feel like a, a, a great place to be because people are um, uh, communicating very easily and, and it's all about what's happening at that, at that time. So there's a sort of level uh, of interaction that you, know, you, you might not get. Usually we, we had the Olympics here in, 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 in London recently and this was one of the highlights of, of, of people's lives. You know, people have lived here for, for, for decades 
talk about that that time. And it was simply because there was a, a feeling everybody coming to the city and it very much changed the, the dynamic dynamic and the, the sense of interaction and communication there. So there, there are upsides to, to being in a crowd. Mm-hmm. And, and, you, and you talk about how, you know, crowds oftentimes, especially in a crisis or in, a, in a, some sort of emergency situation, mm. people organize very quickly uh, to be empathetic, to be helpful, to gather resources, to aid people who are hurt. Um, people don't just step on each other's faces and go for big screen TVs. I mean, the, the people do tend to actually uh, organize around a common purpose, which oftentimes that purpose is let's all survive this. Absolutely. Yeah. But there are many studies on how crowds behave during during disasters um, and in fact if, uh, if you talk to the emergency services they they will often say that one of the, the hardest thing for them in a in an emergency in a crowd emergency if there's a fire in a in a building or or, or a bomb threat or, or or something like that the hardest thing is to get people to move mm-hmm. to get people to actually go for the exit um, because people often tend to be much more passive than than you would think. Uh, in there was a study on what happened during uh, the Twin Towers at nine eleven. Once the planes had hit, the amount of time that it took people to start to move down the stairs, to move away from their desks, um, it was I think an average of six or seven minutes. But a lot of a lot of people took much much longer. And this is because when there's a sense that you don't quite know what's going on, and other people don't look like they're taking action, then you're going to follow what's happening all around you. And so this sense of passivity tends to dominate. And that's one of the real real challenges for those who, who actually have to deal with crowds and emergencies. Right. Yeah. I've read, um, they call, I think some emergency responders call it negative panic. Um, ah, that's a good term. Yeah, It's great. I love it. Um, and the, there's a, I forget the, the researcher, but there's a, it was a great experiment in which they had people sitting in a room. It's, it's like one person who's the subject and everyone else is a Confederate. And uh, so they're actors and mm. they start filling the smoke, up, uh, filling the room up with smoke. And it's enough smoke so that it would seem like there's a fire in the building. But all of the Confederates are instructed to just keep taking this test that they're all working on and not That's act right. alarmed. And so pretty much every single time they do this, the, the one person who's not in on it will just sit there until the room is full of smoke. And if it had been a real fire, they would have died. So we're, right. we're very, you know, we're very concerned about, well, what is everyone else doing? We immediately look for uh, everyone else's reactions because we were so such social creatures. Yeah. I mean, this, this happens, you see this a lot in, in, in when ferries sink. Um, you know, we get a few ferry sinkings in European waters, um, but there was one very recently uh, South Korean ferry, which was full of school children. And in that situation, people tend to be very passive and they wait to be instructed. Uh, and in the case of this South Korean ferry, which was full of school children, uh, school children used to being told what to do by their teachers. And in this case, uh, the captain and crew were telling them not to move. Mm. And hundreds of people lo- lost their lives when they could have been saved very easily by simply being told to get to the lifeboats. In fact, you know, inducing a sense of panic in that situation could have saved a lot more lives. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's hard. It's, it's, it's so crazy to think. In first stage, step one, induce panic. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's a great, you know, one of the greatest lessons from your book is just that, you know, is to really realize that you're not just this individual actor. And in psychology, they call it the, you know, the fundamental attribution error, the idea that mm. people aren't characters. They're not, um, all of their behavior doesn't come from some sort of wellspring that it just is uh, a the person that they are at all times, that from situation to situ- situation, context to context, you change. And that context usually is the people around you. It's not necessarily, uh, you know, the physical situation that you find yourself in. That's um, it. Yeah. And yeah. So before you go, I wanted to, um, I really wanted to get this last thing in and that is you write a lot and you have a lot of actual, uh, firsthand experience dealing with, um, suicide bombers. Uh-huh. And, uh, so you have great insight into this. And I think that the misconception here is that, we tend to think, and you write about this, that we tend to think that suicide bombers, we paint them as being someone who is psychologically damaged or that they are some sort of lifelong fundamentalist. 
or that they're just really poor and ignorant or that they are down on their luck and ready to commit suicide anyway. But mm. the science and your observations uh, and your reporting show this is not true. So what is it that you've learned and what has science learned about what creates a suicide bomber? Well, wow, that's, that's, that's a question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, I mean, this, this, is a, this is a really difficult subject to research and, and also, I think, to talk about because immediately you, talk, you start talking about suicide bombing and clearly it's an inherently evil act mm-hmm. and people immediately assume that the actor has got to be evil too. But, yeah, as you were suggesting there, that all the studies that have been done uh, the, the place I'm most familiar with in, for this phenomenon is, is, is the West Bank and, and Gaza, the Palestinian territories and Israel. And all the studies that have been done there show that it's almost impossible to predict who will go on to be a, a, a suicide bomber because the communities that they are recruited from, I mean, it's not actually going on at the moment. Uh, I was there in um, the early 2000s when it was... It was, it was happening every day. Mm. But those communities, um, full of people uh, living their lives in, in a kind of uh, a war situation. But the, peop- the people who were recruited by the terrorist groups to go into Israel and blow themselves up were almost, there's nothing that could define them and set them apart from the rest of their population. And, and, and the reason we know that is because a couple of researchers looked at Palestinians who had tried but failed to blow themselves up, quite a few. And these researchers had access to them in, 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 in prison. So th- these people often um, very susceptible to, to the views and opinions of others, if anything. Uh, it was something like that that distinguished them. But of course, you know, that's not really a, a standout personality trait. And, and then from the other side, there were some Palestinian researchers who looked at people who were involved in these groups. Again, nothing that you could say, you know, that person, that's why they were easily recruited. Mm-hmm. The difference is uh, if you look at the people who actually run these organizations, the people who do the recruiting, but who don't, volunteer themselves um they're often uh pretty different uh in personality traits um narcissistic mm. and so yeah this is the thing what the science shows really is that there's nothing that can predict how whether someone is going to participate in this so it, it, it you know it's a difficult it's a difficult science to to to, to, to manage and to talk about because it's just telling you effectively a negative right well that's that's, defining but that in in itself yeah that in itself is an extremely important thing to know i think yeah because you know so much of where we go wrong so many times institutionally is in assuming that we understand the situation and Mm -hmm. um the it it reminded me a lot uh what the way you describe it in the book it reminded me a lot of uh cults and cult behavior where um for a long time, people assume that the people who are in cults are a, t- a certain kind of person. Uh, and it's more, the science seems to show that it's not really the kind that anyone could join a cult given the right circumstances. It's the more about the cult leaders are a very specific kind of person, a very charismatic and, right. um, a person who is very, uh, able to immediately elicit feelings of, uh, that you're in a family and that you're part of a greater cause and a cause that's worth, um, supporting. And then that, um, so it seems like uh, the very similar, very similar. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds very similar. And, and, and some of the techniques, uh, some of the, t- the techniques that the uh, the terrorist groups use uh, are, are very similar to those used in cults. And um, encouraging this this sense of family, they 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 would um, uh, gather the recruits into into groups and, and and kind of nurture them together. So groups of five or six uh, little units, and do, and so they encourage a sense of loyalty among these people. And of course, you know, when one of them goes off and uh, blows himself up, it's very difficult for the others to pull out because they would then be ostracized. And it's a sort of 
uh, psychological games that, that these groups play. And, right, yeah. Um, so it's, it's not so, I mean, the focus is very much on these supposed evildoers uh, who commit these, these awful crimes. But the real focus should be on you know, the groups, the group dynamics uh, of the organizations that are carrying them out. Because there is, I think I'm right in saying there's, n- there's never been a case of a suicide bombing carried out by an individual who is not associated with a group. Well, hardly any. Right. It's very much a group phenomenon. It's the, um, it's, it's what you point out is that it's an organizational thing so that it's, uh, you know, uh, they feel, and I know people are going to find this a repugnant thought, but it's yeah. that they feel that they're, uh, in a band of brothers, that they're, they're in a, it's, it's mm. similar to what happens in a platoon where people become very, uh, um, you're very concerned about not letting each other down and about, uh, treating each other well and, um, uh, committing to familial bonds and you know in, in a sense and no pun intended i mean they're hijacking primate tendencies and yep. and that's what is that's what's happening in an uh, at least that's the way the way i saw it from what you were writing and that this is just simply uh, that the reason that you have terrorist cells is not so much that it is it makes it harder for them to find and deal with by organizations that are trying to stop them even though that's sort of like a a, a latent function it's that that cell creates that family atmosphere that you find in cults and other things. And in also small groups of soldiers that keeps them on task and headed toward the, you know, whatever goal that they've been given. Absolutely. I, I always, I get, I always get in, in, in trouble when I, when I make that comparison, but it is uh, terrorist groups effectively, they co-op the, the dynamics of, of army units. And, and uh, it's a very similar psychology that goes on the, the nurturing of, of, of small groups. I mean, it's, um, you know, the, the history of war heroism is, is sort of tied up with uh, examples of people doing things who you would never have predicted. Most war heroes are very hard to predict. You look back through, that, through their records, oftentimes they have no previous history of, of courage. Um, but in that moment, surrounded by that particular tight band of, of brothers, uh, you know, they, they do something uh, and that's ultimately highly altruistic. And it is a similar dynamic in, in terrorist groups, mm-hmm. although, of course, it's, we're, not, we're, not, we're not drawing a, a moral comparison here. Oh, of course we're not, of course a, not. a scientific one, but people often, you know, don't distinguish uh, when, when this gets talked about. So I often get into trouble for making that comparison. I'm glad you've made it. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I, I'll take that heat. The, uh, <laughs> no, it's fascinating because this is what makes it um, frightening is that these, as you write in the book, these, these people come from such diverse backgrounds and their own families, their, their actual blood families are astonished that the, mm. that they ended up falling into um, a group of people who could, who could encourage this type of behavior from them. That's right. And, and, uh, people who have who have debriefed uh, suicide terrorists who uh, haven't carried out their act or who have failed, people who who interview them afterwards, they they often say, well, I mean, they're the easiest people to effectively you know to to, to break because um, their their world the world view that encouraged them to go about this act is not something that is inherent in their in their personality. You know, there's, there's not some uh, evil character trait. It's it's just a situation that they were put in, uh, and uh, you know once you prick that bubble, the whole thing comes crashing down. You know, mm. so that's that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, I could go on a lot yeah. about this, but yeah, anyway, I, I so. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, this is. Um, I love the book. We didn't even we didn't get to so much, but it's it's. Uh, I I highly recommend it. Uh, I love. You know, you you. You, th- you think that this may be material that has been covered before, but no, you have a really, uh, a truly uh, new insights and lots of, uh, lots of things here to, to, that you will read and you'll go, oh my God, I wish I had, uh, my whole life I've thought this and it's actually this way. It's great stuff. Great. Thanks, um, So I know people are going to want to uh, find you uh, out there. How can someone find you on the internet? Best way is to come to my website, uh, michaelbond.co.uk. All the details on that. And what are you working on uh, now? What are you working on in the future? Well, I'm actually um, I'm doing I'm working on something that's come out of the book. Uh, it's a it's a, a dating 
website. That sounds kind of bizarre. It's a dating website <laughs> <laughs> based on I've I've done a lot of research in, into why dating websites is, uh, are so difficult to to navigate, and why it's so hard to to find people that we like on them. Um, so it's all about intuitive dating. Is actually through through pictures. It's called Twenty One Pictures, and it's it's trying to uh, put back some of the some of what we know about human psych- uh, human psychology into how we choose people and 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 making it a more real life situation. So it's all done through pictures to try and make the most of our intuition. Um, so that's taking that's taking my time at the moment. <laughs> that is the most un- un- <laughs> unexpected answer. So I love it. Um, all right. Well, look, uh, I thank you so much for coming on the show. I really love the book and I really appreciate you being here. Thanks very much, David. Thank you. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsor. If you want to create a website and you want to do that in a way that is drag and drop and it's really simple and it looks beautiful at the end and you have lots of options to pick from that you can move around and change to match what you're trying to create. And most importantly, if after doing all that, you want to be able to get on the phone or send an email to someone and say, hey, look, I'm having problems here or hey, how do you do this? And you want that company to answer you 24-7, then you should go with Squarespace because it's all those things. And plans start at $8 a month and they include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. So you can create a portfolio, you can create an online store, you can create a website that shows off whatever it is you're trying to create, even you know a blog or just your place on the internet. Go to Squarespace. And if you use the offer code less dumb at checkout, then you'll get 10% off and a free trial. So go to squarespace.com, enter the code less dumb, and you will begin building a website immediately. And as they say over at Squarespace, a better web starts with your website. And now we return to our program. On each episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast, I read a bit of self-delusion news or a scientific study while I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader, and then that listener or reader is sent, in return, a signed copy of You Are Not So Smart, my book. And uh, this week, we're going to try cookies that look like stained glass windows surrounded by a sugar cookie. I am not kidding. It is insane. These cookies come to us from Laura Lee Gooding. And uh, she says in her email that her her mom used to make these with uh, my brother and I as kids. So these would be biscuits to her, uh, usually closer to Christmas. They're excellent for teaching science and melting points while making something delicious, as well as smashing hard candies with a hammer, the best combination for a child or childish adult, that's me. You can, of course, do only one color per cookie, but that's boring. Stained glass is wild and wonderful, and not to be constrained to one color per cookie. Gazing through these beautiful cookies will stir that long-forgotten sense of childhood wonder at the world around us. Thank you, Laura Lee Gooding. That is a great email to introduce these. Now, of course, I don't actually make these cookies. I watch as my wife makes them, and maybe one day we'll put out some videos or make a separate website for it or something. I don't know. But um, I can tell you that these were really out there because you um, you can see pictures over at the website and you can see, um, you can go to our, the cookies Pinterest page where we put up a, we have a Pinterest page for all the cookie recipes we've ever done. You can see pictures of all the cookies and you can also see uh, the ingredients and the instructions for each one of them. And this is a, this one is, this is one is really weird because you have to make, sugar cookies, and then you have to make edible stained glass windows on the, in the middle of those cookies. And, uh, you have to use a mixer and you have to, um, take the dough, which is, you know, it's made from vanilla extract and salt and egg and sugar and unsalted butter. But then you take, um, fruit flavored hard candies and you can choose whatever you want. Jolly Ranchers, Lifesavers or anything else, generic stuff, whatever. 
and you have to um, take the that candy and you have to scorch it and it's it's a whole thing and the 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 last part of the process is sort of rolling it all together and baking it and putting it on a wax paper and uh it's 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 wild so we're going to eat these things right here on the air and let's see what do they do to the human body what happens when you eat stained glass windows okay so here we go now first of all it smells like a sugar cookie oh my god Ah, uh, that smells good. And unlike uh, in other episodes, my first bite, I'm going to do right here next to the microphone because you have to experience uh, the insanity of this thing. So here we go. Ready? Listen to this. And then I'll I'll move away. Don't freak out. But the first bite, here we go. Oh! Shards of delicious glass. Oh! Listen to that. <laughs> mm, yeah. So it's great. It's great. It's a sugar cookie. It's a sugar cookie with um candy in the middle. And it's in if you hold it up to the light and it looks beautiful. It's just a beautiful stained glass window in a cookie. It's crazy and it's not like anything else I've ever eaten. Oh, it's so weird. I love it. Thank you so much for this. Laura Lee Gooding, a book is headed your way. Listeners, if you want to make these, you can go to youarenotsosmart.com or the You Are Not So Smart Pinterest page and check it out. So what are we talking about today in the realm of self-delusion news? Well, there's this thing that's been going around, research that's been getting some press in uh, several different online publications about tightness and looseness when it comes to human society, human cultures, and uh, most specifically because these uh, publications are in the United States, they're talking about what states are the tightest and the loosest. And what they mean by tightest and the loosest is the how vehement they are when it comes to encouraging people to stick to social norms. Now, some of the other research into this has revealed that in the deep south of the United States, those are the tightest places. And out there on the edges of the United States, on the... Uh, in California and in the Northeast, those are the loosest. In other words, um, just imagine that, say, something ridiculous happens that paints your state in a bad light, and then you get on Facebook and say, you know, I wish that our state wasn't known for this stupid thing. And then you see somewhere in the comments, a lot of people are going to say back to you, well, if you don't like it, you can get out. Well, that that kind of behavior is not as prevalent out there on the edges of the United States as it is in the deep South. Um, and there are all sorts of other things too. People who drastically tried to enforce, you know, gender norms and social norms and sexual norms and religious norms and all sorts of other norms, norms, and norms. The cultures that are the tightest, um, tend to be very, very interested in keeping people in line and following their norms. They don't like to see people experimenting or challenging those things. And if you do say you don't like it, you can just get out. Well, that's more likely in the deep South than it is on the edges. And they call that tightness or looseness. So this new study, which, in, and I'm reading about this study from phys.org. That's P-H-Y-S.org. It's physics and other stuff. Um, they actually are just sort of uh, reprinting a release from the University of Toronto. And the research comes from the Toronto Rotman School of Management. And all of this was originally published in a journal called Organizational Dynamics. So the, the study says that in cultures that are really tight, say like China or Pakistan, and these cultures are not tolerant of deviation from cultural norms um, versus cultures that are very loose, such as New Zealand and Hungary, which are very open to change and experience higher rates of change than um, the other countries that are in this study. Um, the quotas work better in tight cultures than they do in, lo in loose cultures. And the kind of quotas they're talking about are, say, uh, trying to put more women in positions of leadership, right? Um, in a loose culture, it's difficult to get compliance because whenever the authority figure says, this is what we're going to do, we're going to now, you have to hire so many people so many times at so many places, then uh, people just rebel against it. Whereas in a tight culture, oddly enough, ironically enough, when you, when the, when the leadership of a tight culture says, we are now going to be more tolerant, and they command that of their, 
their people, then people go, okay, well, you know, you're the authority figure. So I guess now I will be more tolerant. <laughs> so uh, the odd finding here, this ironic finding is that uh, in tight cultures that are very um, concerned with upholding social norms, you can instate quotas in those cultures and break apart those social norms thanks to the norm of trying to keep up social norms. Whereas in loose cultures that are open to change, forcing change, forcing change um, through quotas is much less effective. So that's new research from the University of Toronto. And uh, it just adds to the weird, wonderful mix of bizarre things that human beings do in groups. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. You can find links to everything that we talked about today over at You Are Not So Smart. Dot com. Also, remember, You're Not So Smart is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. You can find more great podcasts like this one over at boingboing.net. The intro music is Clash by Caravan Palace. The music beds are by Drew Garraway. Today's guest was Michael Bond, who wrote The Power of Others. Please go over to Facebook and become a fan of You Are Not So Smart over there to get all sorts of information and to comment on the things that we do. Also, you can follow us on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. You can follow me at David McCraney. And I have a new book. It comes out in paperback on August 5th and you can buy it right now. Pre-order anywhere that books are sold. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.